Bible affords us the opportunity to dig a little deeper and address not only relational differences like we did last week. We talked about differences we feel oftentimes in relationships, but also helps us address relational hostility. This passage affords us the opportunity to address not only unintended exclusion because we tend to gravitate towards people like us, and we talked about that last week, but it affords the opportunity to address outright prejudice or discrimination. So this morning, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about prejudice and the gospel, which isn't, I understand, the most comfortable topic to get into, but where else are we going to talk about it? Where else do we have a a safe, straightforward kind of place we can talk about other than church, in a place where we recognize we're going to mess up when it comes to prejudging people. We're going to mess up when it comes to not relating to people the way we should. And God still loves us anyway. Jesus still loves us anyway. That's the kind of environment that we should be talking about prejudice, not just on the news, not just around the water cooler at coffee shops or to your neighbor, but in church. We have to be talking about this, and and this passage gives us such a great opportunity to do so. So what I want to do this morning is I want to make three arguments relating to prejudice. The first is from history, and the last two will be from the Bible. Uh, The first argument is this, that we don't, with time, automatically progress regarding prejudice. We as a human race don't automatically progress regarding prejudice. Secondly, I want to make the argument that sin, because of the sin in our lives, and all of our lives, it, it blurs our vision. Sin has tainted all of us, and so it, it blurs the vision, sorry, it blur, blurs our vision and in, in, in seeing the line between prejudice and performance. I'll explain what that means in a little bit. And finally, the only possibility we can have for lasting peace relationally is through Jesus Christ crucified. All right, so those are the three arguments I'm going to make. And full disclosure, I'm not, I'm not an expert on this topic, either by way of experience or by way of uh, scholarliness or, or study. But I, I do stand before you, guys, as, as a person who has exposed himself to the Word of God and who has allowed the Word of God to expose the prejudice in his own heart over the last couple weeks. And I'm going to share that with you along the way this morning. The good news, too, that same Word of God has also given me fresh hope when it comes to peace, relational peace, where there's prejudice. So I want to encourage you to read this passage, to read these few verses along with me with a similar openness, an openness to the possibility you might be hiding prejudice in your own heart as well. So here's what I want you to do. Let's stand together, and we're going to read together. Stand with me. Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, where the Apostle Paul says this, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is God's word. 
You can have a seat. It's 1948. The English Empire, having wrested control of South Africa, has a conservative Afrikaner government finally elected to power. And it's from this context that, that Bryce Courtenay writes his novel, later made into a movie, The Power of One. It's about a, a young white African named P.K., who has used his school to stage much-needed educational, Afri- uh, educational Af- opportunities for the majority of black Africans in that country. And so he's using his school, he's given them opportunities to, to learn how to read and to write and for arithmetic, but when the African government takes over, he's told by the headmaster of his school that reaching across racial lines for equality is no longer a possibility. Let's watch this clip together. Sir, if we let them get away with it on our own ground, it will never change. History disputes you. History takes too long. Yes, I know it does. It's never kind to those who try to hide it. History disputes you. Uh, these, these sound like wise words coming from, from a def- clearly defeated headmaster. And upon first listening to them, I, I found myself nodding with him. Of course, history disputes you. Things will change. He's trying to get across the reality that history shows that humanity will naturally progress almost on its own. And those who try to speed up history are going to meet resistance, pain, and sometimes death especially as it regards to prejudice. And I want to challenge that assumption this morning. I want to challenge it firmly. The assumption that humanity inherently just going to make progress over time automatically because we're, you know, because humanity. But it's in fact, history shows men like, young men like PK, who, who, people who are in positions of power and positions of privilege, who sacrifice that power, who sacrifice that privilege, that's what kills hostility. That's what kills prejudice in all of its various strains, is sacrifice. In this case, as we go on and hear the story, BK, he sacrifices a scholarship, a full scholarship to Oxford. He sacrifices a particular kind of future, a particular kind of privilege to give himself to defeat apartheid. We see it in Wilberforce's movement to abolish the African slave trade in England. We see it in the emancipation of slaves and later the civil rights movement in the United States. And, and I don't know about you guys, but I've always assumed these kinds of movements, would, historical movements, would be inevitable. Because again, humanity, we just would. They were destined to happen. But the past couple months, I found myself looking back into the history of these movements for equality and I started to realize that they weren't all inevitable. Not at all. In fact, virtually all of the ones I looked at were all hung on a razor's edge. Now let me give you two examples. From my home country, the American struggle in the mid-20th century to integrate people of color into restaurants, into schools, into all kinds of public places, into, into jobs. It's 1963, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., He's endured three prison sentences over the last nine months, and it seemingly made no difference or very little difference 
to his attempt for equality. These nonviolent protests weren't making the impact he hoped for. You get the sense from reading about it, from hearing about it, and things I've heard and things I've listened to, that there was a sense in which it might be time to throw in the towel. It was a defeatist moment until he and the people of Birmingham, Alabama, took a certain risk, a calculated risk that would cost them high schoolers and eventually youth in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963 decide they would march the streets. These were youth as young as six years old would march the streets in front of violent police in many respects. Nearly 1,000 people were jailed as a result of this nonviolent protest. And then the tide started to shift. Razor's edge. Almost didn't happen. Maybe another example of this. Uh, Effia de Klerk. Man, this guy, he was an Afrikaner if there ever was one. He, his Huguenot family roots ran deep. In late 1989, he's elected president of the conservative party, the conservative party responsible for apartheid, the separation of whites and blacks in almost every sphere of life. During his presidential address, the usual was expected. This is his first address to the nation. What was expected, what was customary, is to strengthen apartheid laws, to, to the harsh, oppressive apartheid laws, to gather strength together and show, again, that we want life separate between different kinds of people. And that was expected, again, from de Klerk. Instead, he shocked the world. His nation, his own party, his staff members were equally shocked. As he spoke, he started to say things like, I'm going to allow the participation in a free government of every political party. He said things like, all political prisoners are immediately released without condition. People in political exile, no longer under exile. He announced that there'd be the first democratic election in 300 years, and so in one speech, He dismantled the whole system to everyone's shock, and it came at a price. This party abandoned him. He sealed his political fate, right? Once you say free, open election, and you're the significantly smaller minority, he knew his political fate was sealed. It would just be a few years later that Mandela stood in his place. In nearly every case where prejudice is defeated, it didn't just happen automatically. Typically, people of privilege sacrificed. They gave something costly. I want to fast forward with me, if you would, to just two months ago, where my own country of origin, something took place there I thought I would never witness as an American citizen. A large group of white supremacists and nationalists openly gathered in a college town, college town I visited many times, Charlottesville, Virginia, they first protested by torchlight at night, which something was reminiscent of, of Nazi youth rallies. And the next morning, they were openly spewing hateful epithets, brazenly, in full view of the national media. Among them, James Field Jr. plowed his vehicle back and forth into the pr- crowds of counter-protesters. I was incredulous. Like, like many of my fellow Americans, I, I thought, I... We progress past this. Like, how is this happening? But then as you start to study history, you realize that prejudicial progress isn't something we're born with. It's not inherent in us. And maybe, just maybe, 
Charlottesville as a reminder that the prejudicial cancer builds when privileged individuals and then generations of privileged individuals cease making costly sacrifices necessary for peace. I look at it, that includes my generation in America. I think, where have I made sacrifices to my position as, as a white a male in America? Where have I made sacrifices for equality in my life? like generations before me. That's exactly the kind of stuff addressed by the Apostle Paul in our passage. Sacrifice, peace, even prejudice, which he calls hostility. So the message in a nutshell is going to be this. You're going to hear it, and you're going to hear it again, and you're going to hear it again. There is no peace without sacrifice. And there is no lasting peace without Jesus Christ crucified. First of all, there's no, there's no any kind of peace without sacrifice. There's no lasting peace without Jesus Christ crucified. As I say this, let me give a couple of definitions for us just to help us think as we go forward. By prejudice, I'd simply mean the tendency to discriminate against persons based on some superficially observable difference. I superficially see you're different from me. You're not like me by the things you say, by the way you live, by the skin color you have. And so I, there's a tendency, perhaps, to discriminate against you or you towards me. Here in our passage, it's Jews towards Gentiles. Even Gentiles who loved God, they were observably, people knew about it, not circumcised. And so the Jewish people called them, you are the uncircumcised. It was a cultural slur. It was a cultural insult based on culture and upbringing. It was clear. There was hostility there. And of course, we know of other differences that are superficially observed. Skin color, nationality. We know that pretty quickly. Once someone opens their mouth, they give that away oftentimes pretty, pretty soon. We know prejudice based on wealth. We see someone's clothes and we see their car. Boom, certain assumptions come out. Most of us know separating ourselves according to Superficial stuff like that is wrong. Equality is right. Martin Luther King Jr., I mentioned earlier, dreamed that one day we would judge one another not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. What's even more amazing is what Paul holds out. He has a far richer goal for us, which is peace. Peace between people who are hostile towards each other. Peace between people we've Prejudged, peace is a far greater goal than even treating people based on the content of a character, even equality. Peace, or in Paul's Hebrew, shalom, meant far more than can't we all just get along? That's like the goal for me with my 13 and 11 year old sons, right? When I say, when I say peace to them, can I, we just have peace? I mean, please stop fighting for an hour, all right? I say, like, like please don't get violent about this. That's what I mean when I say peace. Paul means peace. When he says peace, shalom, it meant completeness, wholeness, lacking nothing. That's the kind of peace that is possible through Jesus Christ. So we've said prejudice is the problem. Peace is the goal. And in just three verses, Paul points out why it's so hard to get from prejudice, the problem, to peace, which is the goal. It's excruciating. It's excruciating to get from there here to there, even for Christians. Why is that? Because Paul says something pretty profound here. I think that 
Sin blurs the line between performance, we might even say character, and prejudice. Sin blurs the line between performance and presence. Here's what I mean by that. The Jews treated the Gentiles as less than, and the Gentiles knew it. The Gentiles felt it. They felt less than when they were around Jewish people. There's this wall of hostility between them, but why? Well, the first reason was there was a literal wall between them. Every time they got together in God's house, in the Jewish temple, there's a a four-foot wall, a little four-foot wall that would separate Gentiles from Jews. And there were signs on that wall that said, don't go any further under penalty of death. Archaeologists have found two of those signs. And so there's a literal wall that separates people every time they come to the most important place every week. But that's not all that divided Jews and Gentiles. There's something much greater to which the Jews had access and the Gentiles did not. And Paul talks about that too. The law, what does he say? The law of commandments expressed. The law of commandments expressed in ordinances to which Jews had access. And so, a Jew would point to a Gentile and say, you don't follow the law. You don't follow the law. You don't perform according to the law. You don't live your life according to the law. And they would be right. But, that's also because a Gentile didn't have access to the law. They weren't members of the privileged party. They didn't have the law. That was given to the Jews. You can start to see then where the lines get blurred, right? You judge a person based on what they do, but what if they don't have access to what you possess as a privileged party? See what I'm starting to say here? As a privileged party, you think you get it. You understand. You're in the know, but you fail to account for the sin in all of us that blurs our vision. I asked this question of um, my favorite professor in seminary and also my academic advisor, Dr. Peter Cha, and I asked him the question, like, how do you get out of that rut of, not, of, of judging people simply based on their character, on their performance, on what I see? And he told me this story. He told me the story of his own upbringing in, in Los Angeles, California, in a bad part of town, the child of second-generation Korean-Americans just trying to get by. He went through school as a very incredibly bright kid, did as well as he could do, got through part of high school, earning straight A's in an inner-city Los Angeles school. Then his parents moved to a suburb in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where the schools were much better. And his parents and he both realized he was far behind. He got tutored. And what do you know? He became a straight-A student there, too. And he said this to me. He said, you know, Ryan, had I stayed in L.A., got a job working, maybe at a convenience store, you probably would have judged me in some way, even though I'd reached the highest standards that privilege afforded to me. I reached as high as I could in that school, but I would have worked at a convenience store. I probably wouldn't have had a car. I probably would have looked kind of different to you. And he said, you know, Ryan, you, you are looking at this, as many of us are, from a position of privilege. Makes sense? Sin blurs the line between performance, how we actually live our lives, and privilege. Like, we can't see clearly between performance and prejudice, even. And so, back to our passage, the Jews might be right to say, you know what, Gentiles, you're not living up to the law. You're not living up to the standards of the law. And that was very possible. 
And I would say, well, neither do you. And you have the law. Like, get, why don't you get the law out of your own eye? You have the law and you can't live up to it. How can you see clearly when prejudice has already been formed in your heart and in your life? Jews called Gentiles the fuel that kept hell burning. That was the prejudice in their heart. That's how they looked at Gentiles. So on the one hand, they saw Gentiles and said, well, you're not living up to the law. On the other hand, they saw Gentiles through their prejudice. So how could they see clearly? Most Jews had had long held judgments against Gentiles. How could they trust themselves to have moral clarity to judge themselves and separate themselves as a result? I think this speaks directly to our modern prejudice today. What do we say? What do we secretly say? Sometimes we say them to our closest friends, and I'm just trying to be honest, friends. We say things like, well, by and large, they are lazy. By and large, they have a poor work ethic. Have you ever said that about someone in your heart? Or, by and large, they don't care. They don't have compassion. They don't give a rip about people like me. Was that your experience? Yeah, perhaps. I'll affirm that. Do you have the moral high ground to say it? Maybe. Just like the Jews did in this situation. But as long as you are sinful and have formed prejudice, how can you possibly hope to see clearly? You cannot. And so what does Paul do? He points to Jesus. Jesus had the moral high ground because he lived perfectly, and so he judged perfectly. He could see how each human being performed according to God's law. And yet he left that moral high ground anyway. He crossed the line to give himself to the uttermost. Look at verse 14 again. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That includes the hostility between us and him, friends. We were hostile once towards God. We said no to God and yes to us. And even though we did that, even though Jesus said, man, you're wrong, I have the moral high ground here, I shouldn't be with you, he crossed that line anyway to be with us. How did he do that? By doing away with the moral high ground, period. He did away with the moral high ground as the standard for judgment. Look at verse 15. By abolishing, so he broke down in this flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Peace, friends, looks like leaving your moral high ground, which is distorted anyway, and giving of yourself. Remember, there's no peace without sacrifice and no lasting peace without Jesus Christ crucified. And it's so difficult to do that. It's so difficult to give of yourself, to take yourself from the moral high ground and put yourself in position to care for someone else someone who's not like you, someone you might even judge. And so Paul keeps repeating it. He keeps having to confront the Jews and the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 8, I want to hammer this point home. 1 Corinthians 8, the Jews have the moral high ground. You can read about that later. Paul even says so. But Paul also says, who cares when it's causing division? Jews, give of yourself. Sacrifice your moral high ground to relate to Gentiles in unity and love. Look to Jesus. In Romans 15, it's the Gentiles who have the moral high ground. But again, Paul's like, who cares? It's causing division. It's causing hostility. It's making people stumble. So Gentiles, sacrifice your moral high ground. Give of yourself. Get off your high horse. Look to Jesus. Getting from prejudice to peace is literally excruciating for Christians. It causes us 
to be crucified to self. We have to look to Jesus Christ crucified, which is why I hold this third argument out to you. The possibility for lasting peace is Jesus Christ crucified. That's it. There are a couple reasons why only Jesus can give us lasting peace. Number one, sacrifice. If we were to just give of ourselves to, to reach across and care for someone unlike us, someone even towards hostility towards, sacrifice can't change a prejudiced heart. But Jesus' sacrifice can. Our own sacrifice cannot change a prejudiced heart. But Jesus' sacrifice can. And even if you get rid of one prejudice in your life, prejudice, like all sin, acts like a whack-a-mole. Do you remember going to arcade and you played this game called whack-a-mole when you were a kid? Did you guys have this game? A little mole would come up and you'd try to whack it and you get points. But then once you whacked it, another mole came up. And then you'd whack that and then another mole would come up. You'd whack that. And that's what sin acts like in our life. You might reach across and, and understand someone different from you. L- l- gain an understanding, care for them, sacrifice on their behalf. And that could, that could, that could help for sure, but it doesn't get rid of prejudice in our hearts. Sometimes you end up being prejudiced towards someone else unlike you, or sometimes the people like you. You reach across those lines, you say, man, all those people like me, shoot, I don't even like them anymore. I can't even understand them anymore. What Jesus does is amazing. He, he, he causes individuals to be born again as new creations, number one, amazing, but he causes relationships to be born again as new creations. Look at this in our, in our text, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So Jesus makes you a new creation. He makes us a new creation, making peace and reconcile both to God and one body through the cross, killing the hostility. It's only the cross, friends, that can melt our hearts. Think about it. How, how is iron melted? Through fire, Right? And how how is iron melded to another piece of metal? Through fire, right? That's what the cross does. It melts our hearts individually, and it melds our hearts to other people. Like, how can you look, how can I look at Jesus Christ crucified and my heart not be melted, be softened, be gracious and understanding and tender? How can I? Another reason, not only Jesus gives us lasting peace, only in Jesus do we find a promised future of multi-ethnic peace. Revelation 5, 5 through 10, this is the vision that John sees about the end of the world as we know it. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
You know, killing prejudice, promoting peace, it is a lifelong work. Who would want to begin such a work unless they knew that work would endure, unless they knew that work would carry on and not only endure, but be perfected? That's only promised in Jesus. It's only promised in Jesus that we will all one day be together without sin from every tribe and language and people and nation only through Jesus. Is that possible? That is the hope we have in Christ. So what does that mean then practically for us now? How, how might I then sacrifice of myself for the purpose of peace? For the purpose of having true peace, of not just having two men, but one man melted together through the cross. How can I get there? And fair warning, it's going to require some deconstruction in our lives. Number one, acknowledge my own prejudice. Here in Cayman, the big three prejudices are all in play. Racial, racial prejudice, looking at someone else's skin color. National prejudice, when we open our mouths, talk, realize where one another is from. And socioeconomic prejudice, right? When you look at someone's clothes and their car. And I've try, been trying to think the last two weeks... I'm not just addressing prejudice in general. I'm addressing prejudice, maybe even here at Sunrise Community Church and in my own life. And one of the things I thought of is, you know, living here, I don't know about you, but I take pride in the fact that I get to relate to people of of different nationalities and of different skin color in a way that's unique from where I used to live. There's all this diversity, except one thing is glaringly amiss in our relationships, oftentimes that socioeconomic factor is often missing. My guess is most people with whom we relate are of the similar economic tier to us. You follow what I'm saying? They might be a different skin color. They maybe have different nationality. And for that, we should be encouraged. But there's something that looks still so similar. Similar education, similar connections, similar privileges. And if that's you... Have the courage to acknowledge there might be a prejudice in your own heart towards people who don't have the same wealth that you do. That you don't practically really relate to those people. And you know what? It's not just there. For the group that feels victimized or less than, you've probably carried prejudice as well. Historically, victimized groups often feel like they have the moral high ground. Yeah? I'm victimized. They're wrong. They don't understand. They don't get it. In other words, we're all guilty. And I want to encourage us to have the courage to see prejudice that's still lurking in our own heart. So let me just share what that's been like for me and my own unique prejudices. Just be open with you. I've had to realize I have a prejudice against short-termers. What I mean is, if you communicate to me that you're here in Cayman for one or two years, and that's pretty much it. I'm oftentimes going to distance myself from you. Because I often feel wrongly, I, I admit this, I often feel wrongly that you're not going to care about this island. You're not going to care about my home. You're here for one or two years, and then you're gone. And I'm saying that's wrong. That's prejudiced of me. And for all of us, that's the first step, is to just acknowledge there is prejudice still in my own heart. Here's the second thing you can do. Get the log. Get the log out of your own eye. 
Acknowledge where there's prejudice. Get the log out of your own eye. Matthew 7, Jesus teaches that the same standard with which we judge others will be used against us. He says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you can see clearly to see the speck in your brother's eye. So I just acknowledge I have this prejudice I have towards short-termers because of indifference towards this aisle in my home. But this week in my community group, God showed me I had a big old log in my own eye. In our community group, we were talking about caring for the environment, caring for the creation that God has established. And I realized I had not been environmentally responsible here in Cayman. There are simple things I haven't done and sacrificed and convenienced myself to care about the island and its environment. And so here I am saying, you know, I recognize it. I too am a sinner. I haven't cared for Cayman the way I should. And what does that do? It has softened my heart towards others. It's melted my heart to see, man, I'm still accepted by God. I'm still loved by God. Here's a third thing you can do to sacrifice towards others for the cause of peace. Move towards someone. Move towards someone you've thought of differently. And I'm putting that very generously for us, differently. Maybe someone you've been prejudiced towards. Move towards that kind of person. Reach out to them, hear their story. Ask what it's like for them to worship alongside someone like you. What perceptions do they hold? So often for, for the privileged group, when we think of peace, we think of, hey, but are we all getting along? Everybody seems happy when they come to church. Everybody seems pleased. And we don't realize for the less privileged group, they're just trying to make the best of not having a say, of not having a vote, of not having the means to really relate in the way you want to relate. And so they're just making the best of a bad situation. Do you know there's people in that church here right now who feel that way? If you don't know, maybe it's because you haven't moved towards that person and tried to really understand their perspective. What I know is the Bible confronts us. James 2, if you show favoritism towards people of wealth, it's a problem. If you give the seat of honor for someone who's rich, who looks like you, talks like you, it's a problem. Move towards someone unlike you. Maybe it's a literal move. Many of you are going to relocate within Cayman over the next year. Where are you going to move? Where are you going to move? Will you move behind a gate? Will you move to a street or complex of one income level? I'm not so much concerned about you doing that, but if you even ask God. I'm not saying, I mean, who am I to judge? I'm not anyone to judge. This is between you and God, but I'm asking, have you asked God what he wants? Do you want me to move my home, which is half of my life, towards people entirely like me or, or where there's a mixture? And now you might say, man, Ryan, you're getting too personal. You're getting into my, to my finances, to my long-term investments, to my dream homes. And that's why we need Jesus Christ crucified. If we're ever going to be the people God has called us to be, sacrificial people who move towards others in a way that actually causes us to sacrifice, we need Jesus Christ crucified. Because, friends, we can't keep sacrificing for a position of strength. That's what sacrifice is. You have something you can give and you sacrifice it. Some people, we, tr- we try to sacrifice out of nothing. So I've covered a lot. I still want to cover more. I'm not going to. But it's a lot. It could feel overwhelming. I want to encourage you, take heart by first getting strong in the Lord as you look to Jesus Christ crucified. He meant for us to look to him first, to, to, to first be absorbed with his sacrifice 
And so be strengthened for all of us who are weak and powerless. We're supposed to, to get absorbed in Christ crucified and look there for strength. Jesus was born in the flesh, lived for the Father, died to save us. He crossed the blurred lines of privilege, of judgment, of performance. We couldn't live up to his standards, and that didn't stop him from moving across that line and dying for us anyway. He sacrificed himself for us. Who will we sacrifice ourselves for? Who is that person for you? Just deep down, they bother you. And deep down, you think, well, I have good reason that they bother me. I want to encourage you. Cross those blurred lines, prejudice, because Jesus crosses blurred lines and sacrificed himself for you. Let's pray together. Jesus, thanks for this morning. We thank you that you crossed the line. You didn't stay in your moral high ground, your, your place of privilege, which you had. You deservedly had those things, and yet you crossed the line to be born into this world and to give your life for us. God, I confess to you, I so often see people through, well, that's what they deserve, or they don't deserve that. Or I take a place of moral high ground, not seeing that I'm sinful, not seeing that I can't see clearly, not recognizing and taking to great and estimable account, Jesus, what you did for us on the cross and the line you crossed there to give us peace, to make us complete so we might never lack anything in our lives. Help us act like you, Jesus. Amen.